All right, Mercy Road, how are we feeling this morning? Everybody good? Yeah. Great to be with you. Great to see all of your beautiful faces. You guys are coming in with a lot of energy. I love it. We are finishing up this series called Underground Jesus. Has, have you enjoyed this? If you're new to Mercy Road, you have to understand this is the one series we do every single year, and that's very intentional. We want to continually put in front of all of our eyes and all of our hearts and all of our minds the reason why we do what we do as a church. Um, I've heard it said before that if you lose your why, you lose your way. And, and scripture will say it like this, that without vision, the people cast off restraint. And so if we don't have, uh, why are we doing this? What is the reason or the impetus behind why we gather and why we have outposts and why we have huddles and why we do rooted and all that kind of stuff? If we lose the reason why, then, then we're just going to kind of wander around aimlessly and nebulously and we're not going to really accomplish anything. But God's called us. He saved us. He's rescued us to, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Come on. You, you and I are not the point of this thing, but we do play a part in it. And that's what we're going to talk about today as I kind of close the series up. Uh, we're going to talk about this idea of movement. What is the movement that God is calling us into, and how do we play our part in that movement? Um, a couple of things. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, my name is Davey. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. We have people who are watching online. Can you guys help me welcome those who are watching online? Thank you guys so much for being here and tuning in. And um, I, we've got a couple of things just to kind of hit real quick. There's a lot going on in the Mercy Road family of churches right now, and I want to make sure that these continually stay in front of your eyes. First of all, uh, we've got some swag on sale right out here, some merchandise. This is the first day that it's on sale. They gave me a free t-shirt so I could promote it, right? So I'm like, I got a free t-shirt out of it. That's awesome. So I don't know if they're going to ask me to give it back. Probably wouldn't advise it. Um, I tend to sweat a lot, so I'm sorry if you guys want this back. So make sure you pick this up. I promise mine won't be over there. You can have a new one over there, okay? And then also, um, the last time I was here was Pain to Purpose. We did two weeks of Pain to Purpose, and many of you guys came to the workshop and you were interested in the course. We are launching the course officially September 13th. It will be 12 weeks every Monday night from 6.30 to 8.30 here at the Carmel location. If you have not, if you've already registered or you're signed up for information, for some reason you haven't gotten information, you can go to Outpost Central and you can register there. We'll make sure we get you that information. And this is the first time you're hearing it uh, about it. This is a great course for you if you're trying to figure out how to kind of un untangle and understand some trauma you've experienced in your life or pain that you've experienced and how to leverage that for purpose. So I want to invite you to do that. Um, and uh, we were having some conversation today, this week about outposts that were getting started. And um, I received a text message from the team at Mercy Road. I work mostly out of the house. And they were saying that Eric Maitland wanted to start up a follow-up kind of outpost from pain to purpose for those of you guys who are interested in art therapy, if that's something that you're interested in. This is the follow-up that he wanted to start pain to porpoise. And I wasn't sure if they were serious or not. <laughs> and so I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And of course, Eric Maitland, he can't be serious at all. And so this is not a real thing at all. But I thought it was very humorous after I kind of realized that they really were joking. But if you're into art therapy, I don't know, maybe Eric can get that started with you. Um, we're going to dive in. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, and uh, I want to talk about a passage that could, should be and could be very familiar to you, but I want to talk about it in a way that might be unfamiliar to you. I'm hoping that as God showed this to me, that I can show it to you as well, and I can do justice to kind of the aha that I felt like I got as I was receiving this passage. And, um, and, and I want to talk mostly about what are, what's the one thing that inhibits or stifles movements 
in the church. And what's the one thing that stimulates movements? There is a massive concept that will stifle a movement more than anything else, a movement of God, a movement, an expression in the kingdom of God. And there's one thing that will stimulate it more than anything else. And I get the privilege of traveling across the country and seeing great churches and also seeing some churches that I feel like that, that the spirit of God and the movement of God has been stifled in as well. And I can tell you, um, I've kind of been able to assess what the common denominator of those things are. And that's what we talk about here in this passage. Jesus is trying to help the disciples understand a really massive lesson in this passage. Now, I'll, tell, I'll go ahead and tell you, the thing that stifles movements more than anything else is this one concept called selfishness. Selfishness. Selfishness is just a form of, of pride where uh, Scripture tells us that God resists the proud, okay, but he gives grace to the humble. And so when you and I approach things from a selfish place, it can clog up the work of God in our lives. It can clog up the work of God in our relationships, in our marriage, in our friendships, in our parenting, when we approach things from a selfish perspective, when we're only looking out to our interests. However, adversely, if we approach things from a selfless standpoint, it actually stimulates the movement of God more than anything else does. And so uh, this is what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples in this passage. So let's go to Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. And uh, this is what it says. Now, when Jesus heard this, does anybody know what this is? This, by the way, it's very important to understand the context of what's going on in a passage. Otherwise, you won't really understand the full meaning of the passage. And so this is the passage that is right before it explains to us that Jesus's cousin and best friend has just been beheaded, John the Baptist. Jesus and John the Baptist were very kindred spirits. They were also kin. They were cousins. They were both advancing the kingdom of God. John was the forerunner of Jesus. He was here to proclaim that the kingdom of God was coming. And then he pointed off to Jesus, kind of passed the baton, when he said, hey, look, behold, the Lamb of God. As Jesus came and Jesus was baptized by John, they grew up together. They would have been very close with each other. And Jesus receives word that John the Baptist is killed by the king who did not like the message that John the Baptist was preaching. How many of you? know that when you live for God, when you decide to step into this kingdom of God thing, that you're not going to be liked by everybody. Hello. There's going to be people at work. There's going to be people in your neighborhoods that, that they're going to see it and perceive it as something different. And so you, you might receive some persecution as you try to live this whole thing out. And John did ultimately to death. And Jesus hears word of this. So he's greatly grieved. This is a major tragedy in his life. So it says when he heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself, which nobody would blame Jesus. He wants to get away. He wants to find some reprieve. He wants to grieve. And so he kind of pulls back away from the crowd. It says, but when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, I've been to Israel a couple times. Uh, in fact, our ministry, Nothing Is Wasted, takes trips to Israel. We have one next October that we're taking. If anybody's interested in that, you can go to nothingiswasted.com. We like to take people around to these spots and illuminate God's word. I think that when you go and visit it, it takes the word of God and takes it from black and white to color. And so some things that while I've been over there, I've learned a little bit is, is kind of the layout of the Sea of Galilee, which is where this story takes place. 
The Sea of Galilee is kind of in the middle of the whole nation of Israel. Can you guys see this okay over here? Can you guys see it okay over here? I'm going to try to make sure everybody can get a good vantage point of this. So the Sea of Galilee is in the middle of the geography of Israel. And it, around the sea, this is where Jesus spent most of his time doing his ministry. Sometimes he was in Jerusalem, which is south of Galilee. Most of the time he was in Galilee. And so there's a city here in Galilee called Tiberias which he spent a lot of time at. This is actually where we, we've stayed in Tiberias a couple times to base camp around here. And then there's a city right here called Capernaum, which maybe you're familiar with that. You'll see it in a lot of passages in scripture, Capernaum. These are the two cities that he did a large majority of his public ministry, okay? But when he hears this news, he decides to pull away and he goes up here to a place just outside of the city of Bethsaida. Say Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Okay, so maybe he was coming from Tiberias, maybe from Capernaum. Either way, he takes a boat and he goes to Bethsaida, okay? And it says that the crowds heard he was going, found out where he was, and they followed him around on foot. So let's say it was Tiberias. They come to Capernaum. They say, hey, guess what? Jesus is going over to Bethsaida. Let's go over there. So they all come over here. And it says not only did they follow him by foot, they beat him there. Okay, isn't that crazy? So he's on boat going across. They're going around. By the way, the circumference of this sea, right, the lake of Gennesaret or the Sea of Galilee is 26 miles. So interesting, if you run around the whole thing, you run a marathon essentially, okay? So they took about a fourth, a quarter of 26 miles and they ran on foot ahead and beat Jesus there. That's how much they wanted what Jesus had. Isn't that crazy? That's how contagious this thing that Jesus was offering, the, the spirit of God walking earth in flesh, I call it God in a bot, right? That, that, that they, they, everybody clamored to be around him. He had such a magnitude about him. It was such a magnetic force everywhere that he went. In fact, everybody that was most unlike Jesus liked Jesus the most. He was very unlike all of the religious leaders of the day who would call out everybody's sin, who would condemn people for what they were doing, who ostracized people, who marginalized them, who pushed them out from society, who wouldn't let them go and worship. Jesus didn't, he didn't act like that. In fact, he received people and accepted people dis despite what they were doing. And then he would lovingly point out what, what was going on that was clogging up the work of God in their life. And he would call them to repentance in such a way that people People were inspired to do it. There's something so powerful about Jesus, like this, this like grace and truth all together that people were drawn to and they loved being around him. And Jesus had this contagious spirit so much so that people were like, I gotta go, I gotta go get him. Whatever he's got, I gotta have that. And they beat him there. And the passage tells us he comes up on this shore and it, it was a large crowd, which the, pa the, 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 the subtitle of the passage is the feeding of the 5,000. Most scholars believe it was more than 5,000 because the way they tracked numbers in Jewish time period is patriarchal. They only counted men, okay? So it was about 20,000, including women and children, is what most scholars believe. So here's this crowd of 20,000 people. Jesus comes. He's trying to get away. He's hurting. He's grieving. He's trying to take some self-care, and the people follow him and find him. And what's crazy is it says that he has compassion on them. In the midst of his greatest time of need, when he needs somebody else to pour into him, when he needs somebody else to take compassion and empathy on him, his heart opens up and he has compassion on this crowd of people who all they want is something from him. Come on. And he pours himself out to heal them. Can I tell you that sometimes your greatest ministry 
can come out of your deepest seasons of misery. Sometimes the greatest miracles that flow out of, through and out of your life are coming from your deepest messes that have been created by yourself or by somebody else. It's amazing what happens when we let God begin to transform our pain and we open ourselves up even in the midst of pain to be used as a conduit to help other people. And, and in this moment where Jesus is at his deepest, greatest heartache, he performs the miracle that is, at least in volume, the greatest miracle that we have documented in scripture. That's not a coincidence. And then he uses this moment right here to teach the disciples a very important principle, okay? So it says that in verse 15, now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, isn't it crazy? Now when it's evening, that means Jesus has been preaching for a long time, okay? Amen for long sermons. Let's, okay, no, all right. Um, the disciples come to him and they're like, hey, Jesus, listen, uh, that was, you know, that, that first 30 minutes, that was awesome. That was incredible. I mean, that whole like eye for an eye, you know, like that was powerful. Love what you're doing right there, Jesus. That was great how you connected the dots there. But it's been about three hours and, uh, and they say, um, this is a desolate place um, and the people are hungry. Can you send them away to the villages to buy food for themselves? Now, I... It seems like on the surface, the disciples had every intent to look out for the needs of all of these people, doesn't it? But I know the human nature, and I don't think that they were looking out for other people. I think they were looking out for themselves. I think they were hungry. Come on. You know how it is. You get like hungry and tired, and it's like hangry, you know? And there are two things that can bring out selfishness in me more than just about anything else. The first one is when I'm hungry. I'm really selfish when I'm hungry. I don't know about you. Like my beautiful bride, she's sitting right here, um, Christy. We, we love to go to Tapa's restaurants. Ta Sorry, Tapa's restaurant. Okay, just to be clear. Tapa's, all right, where you share the little small plates, okay? We love to go there because Christy likes an assortment of food, and we like to share these food, you know, these like, you know, like a, a divvy and stuff right there in Carmel, and we go to these places, and I, I don't know how I feel about these because I don't like to share food in, inherently, right? Because as soon as we share a plate, I draw an imaginary line right down the middle, and if she starts encroaching on my side, you know, I'm like, <laughs> like, that's less for me, you know? I know that love keeps no record of wrong, but it keeps record of french fries, okay? Like... <laughs> especially truffle fries, when they got that like garlic on it and it's just mm, so good. So food can make selfishness come out in me. Traffic can make selfishness come out in me. Amen? We were just in downtown Carmel a couple weeks ago. And you remember this? Like I'm trying to parallel park and I pull up to the, the, what, the way you're supposed to parallel park. You put your blinker on. You pull right up to the car in front of you and then you put it in reverse and try to indicate to the people behind you, you're gonna pull in like this. And as soon as I kick it in reverse and look back, somebody had pulled right behind me. So I couldn't get in. I'm like, ah. So I go up to the next place. I try to do the same thing. They pull up right behind me again. And I'm like, come on. And then I realize I'm in Carmel. And it might have been one of you. And so I couldn't get too mad. <laughs> I had to be gracious, right? Well, then just the other day, I literally do the same thing to somebody else. I wasn't paying attention. I was just kind of driving. And I pull up right behind somebody when they're trying to parallel park. You know, because why? Because I'm selfish at the end of the day. And you are too. And this is something that's inherently wrong with us. 
The human nature, the human condition is that we are selfish. And there are these times where seasons of pressure and stuff, it pulls that out of us even more. So I don't think the disciples were looking out for others. I think they were looking out for themselves. They're like, Jesus, we got to send them away because I'm hungry. And Jesus wants to use this opportunity to show them, listen to me, I want to show you a different upside down route or pathway to receiving the satisfaction that you long for so much. And it's not you trying to get something for yourself. It's actually quite the opposite. Now, before we jump into that, there are two major things that could have inhibited the miracle that was happening right here. One we just talked about, self. But the other thing is systems. Systems. There was something beyond the selfishness of the disciples here that was at play that could have inhibited the miracle that Jesus wanted to do right here. And it was the system of brokenness that was in, that was in display of the people that were gathered there. There was a system that from the beginning of time, the origins of time, there's been this, this fracturing of the universe that leads us to act out of selfishness, but ultimately it's this sin that is woven into the systems that causes this ever-increasing unraveling in our world around us. So these people were coming, and they were, why were they coming around here? They were spiritually hungry. They were starving. Their lives were broken. They needed something from Jesus. And then while they're there, they became physically hungry, okay? Did you know that Indiana, friends, is hungry? Do you know this? I was looking up some statistics, then these were pre-COVID statistics. I mean, we're still living in kind of the aftermath of the, the ramifications and still very much in the midst of COVID. And so all of the different things we hear about mental health and about anxiety and suicide that have come as a result of COVID, we're, they're still gathering this stuff. Pre-COVID, listen to these statistics that are um, about Indiana right now. One in five residents of Indianapolis live in poverty. One in five. 20% of our city, friends, lives under the poverty line. And I know this is very difficult for us. We live like very affluent north side of Indianapolis. It's hard for us to pull ourselves up out of that and to kind of see what's going on around us. But this is reality in our city, in our city. Drug overdose in Indiana has increased by 22.5% in three years. Homicide rates in Indy hit a record high in 2018, topping 2017, which in and of itself was a record high. Indiana is ranked as one of the worst states in the category of mental illness. Death by suicide in Indianapolis has increased by 32% since 1999. Homelessness continues to be a problem in our city. Racial divides continues to cause and create more tension within our city, especially after 2020. Human trafficking is drastically on the rise of Indiana. If we just walk around our city, drive around our city, go to work, friends, you will encounter hunger. People who are spiritually hungry. People who are physically in need. There's systems within our city that are broken. What's the answer to that? What's the answer? Well, the answer is not anything necessarily physical. Now, there is definitely some physical answers, but that's not the root of the answer. Ephesians 6 tells us that we do not fight a battle of flesh and blood. We fight a battle in the principalities, which that word right there means the origins. We're fighting against systems. 
We're fighting against systems that have been set up um, in, in, the, in the spiritual realm, in a demonic realm where Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And he wants to divide, not just people in general, but wants to divide the church around some of these issues. So what's the answer to this? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in this passage because the disciples choose to respond to this hunger in many ways that the church chooses to respond to the hunger of the world around it. The disciples, uh, and sometimes we see in the church, that they, they condemn. We can be guilty of condemning the hunger of the people around us, right? We call out people's sin and we're whistleblowers in their lives. Kind of stand on the side of the, the curb with a megaphone telling people where they're gonna spend eternity rather than lending a hand to help them come up. It's like yelling out on a, on a boat somebody who's drowning, you need Jesus, and they can't hear you at all because the waves are crashing up over top of them. Instead of extending a hand to pull them up out of this, this storm of these waves and putting them in the boat and helping them physically, we tend to condemn people for, for the lifestyle they're living, or we tend to critique and we tend to isolate and seclude ourselves and pull away from society and kind of create our little bubbles as Christianity so that we don't have to interact with people who are hurting and broken and lost, and our kids don't have to interact with people who are hurting and broken, broken and lost. Instead of teaching our kids how to be light in a dark world, we pull them out of the darkness. Well, Davey, the, the, the world just keeps getting darker and darker and darker and darker. And yes, there are times we do need to seclude uh, in certain places or shelter or help to make sure that we're framing out, especially with our kids, some things that are age appropriateness. But listen, if the world is getting darker and darker and darker and darker, I'm not sure the church is doing its job because the church was called a city on a hill, a light in the darkness. And when something gets darker and darker, the light just shines brighter. You know that, if we were to flip the lights off completely, one little tiny light would draw everybody's attention. And this is what the church is called to be in the midst of these systems. But the problem is, is those of us who make up the church, we are stuck in our stronghold of selfishness. And until we break the stronghold of self, we will never break the systems that are around us. Jesus tells them, hey, hey listen, I got an answer for you. It says in verse 16, they don't need to go away. They don't need to go away. Look what he says. You give them something to eat. Now, I like imagine the disciples are like, <laughs> hold on, Jesus. I, my, maybe like hard of hearing, like I thought you said, we are supposed to give them something to eat. But he said, yeah, that, that, you give them something to eat. Well, see, Jesus, we, like all we have, we just stopped by Captain D's. We went through the drive-thru, got a little value meal. We got five loaves and two fish, and there's 20,000 people. I mean, what you did back there where you like turn water into wine, that's cool, but that's all we got right here. Isn't it interesting that when it comes to participating in the movement of God, we often look at what we don't have rather than what we do have? Isn't it interesting that we often look at our lack or the resources that maybe we, we don't have or the talents that maybe we don't have. We see somebody else's giftings and we kind of, well, I don't have that. I can't do this. And we start to focus on, on what we don't have rather than focusing on what's in our hands. Jesus is always going to call us to focus on what's in our hands. He told Moses this when Moses said, I can't go and free the people. He goes, what's in your hand? Moses is like, it's just a staff. He goes, I'm going to use this staff and I'm going to multiply it into a lot of miracles, but you've got to lay down your staff. And what he told the disciples is you've got to give me what you have. 
have. And this is what he's telling us, Mercy Road, is it doesn't matter if you've got something little or if you've got something great. You just got to give it to me is what he says. And when you give it to me, I can do something great and I can multiply that. It just takes a seed like a mustard seed of faith. But Jesus, in every miracle, is always calling for the recipient of the miracle to play a part in the miracle. You understand that? Look through just about every miracle you see in the Gospels. He calls them to take a step of faith first. Why? Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And faith becomes this thing that opens up this, this portal where God's power can flow in us and through us and miracles can take place in our lives and through our lives. There's a step of obedience. There's a step of sacrifice that has to happen. The problem is, is that we are way too bent on convenience and comfortability. We don't like sacrifice. We don't like giving things up. We don't like giving up our time. We don't like giving up our energy. We don't like giving up our talent. We live in a scarcity mentality that says, I've got to hold it and hoard it for myself. And we are essentially in the American church greedy of all of the things that we have. Can I tell you something? The world of the stingy will continue to grow smaller and smaller and smaller. But there's something that happens in the world of the generous. The world of the generous begins to grow grander and grander and grander. These people were willing to run miles to be around Jesus. And man, if we can't find the church that's got 100% of everything we want, the right worship, the right preaching, the right kids ministry, the right, like, we're like, ah, I don't know. Well, no wonder in the Western church we don't see the movements of God that we want to see. Because movements of God are marked by selfless sacrifice. I believe the secret sauce of Mercy Road Church, friends, the reason we've seen what God has done over the past 10 years, I believe it's because there are groups of people in this church who have said, you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm going to lay down my life for this. I'm going to give up my time. I'm going to give up my talent. I'm going to give up my treasure. I'm going to sacrifice, and I'm going to overextend. And yes, maybe when I overextend, it hurts a little bit. But at the end of the day, I know and trust that God's going to return to me everything that I give up, that I want to be a conduit for the things of God and not stifle those things up. Jesus says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. He doesn't say, look, okay, look to Pastor Josh. Pastor Josh will feed everybody, guys. Pastor Rashad's going to feed everybody. No, can I tell you, the churches where movements of God are happening are the churches that adopt the mentality that every single believer, every one of us, every member of the body of Christ is a minister of the gospel of Christ. We believe in the priesthood of all believers that all of us take part in this ministry, each to his own gift. And so, Jesus goes, you give him, you give him food. They're like, well, okay, we'll, we'll try. So, so he, they tell him what, he, what they have, and, and Jesus says in, in verse 18, says, um, all right, bring it here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said, a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. This is wild. 
Don't miss, don't miss what's happening. Jesus says, okay, bring me what you have. So they, bring it, he, they put it in Jesus' hands. He holds it up to heaven. He, he blesses it. Okay? Now, is that the moment that the miracle happened? Well, we, would, we, we could be tempted to think so because we think in Western Christianity that blessing means more, right? More material things like God bless me, bring, bring favor, you know, all this kind of stuff. And sometimes it might, but it's always to steward for the advancement of the kingdom, right? If, we bring, if God brings us more material things, right? So, so, so that's not where the miracle happens, I don't think. Then he broke it. Which, by the way, um, most of the time, uh, we think blessing in Western Christ- Christianity is like more, but I, I tend to think that blessing is, is the brokenness. Come on. Because out of our brokenness, God can do something to distribute us for the benefit of other people. And that's where blessings take. So he blesses it, he breaks it, and then he gives it where? where who does he give it to? The people? The disciples. He puts it back in the disciples' hands, and he says, you distribute it to the people. The disciples have a decision to make right here. They can start distributing it to the people and do what my kids do and kind of take a piece for themselves while they're distributing. One for you, one for me, one for you, one for... No, but they don't. They kind of, they start just distributing it to people. And I just imagine Peter's over there like, oh my gosh. Thomas, Thomas, you'll never believe this. Of course you won't. (laughs) You don't believe anything, but... Thomas, every time I tear off a piece, it's crazy. There's more that just keeps growing back. This is unbelievable. Holy cow. And it says that everybody had their fill. 20,000 people had their fill. And then there were how many baskets left over? 12 baskets left over of food from five loaves and two fish. How many disciples were there? 12 disciples. Jesus is going, no, 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 no. I want you to understand that the pathway to you getting the satisfaction that you desire, that you crave, you getting filled up, is not you taken for yourself. It's not you navel-gazing and creating this own, your own world and trying to pull back. Come on, our world is gonna continually tell us, look out for you, build your platform, build your brand, put your stuff on Instagram and self-expression, just look out for yourself and don't worry about other people. And that's not the route to satisfaction, friends. The more that you project yourself, the more that you express yourself, the more bitter that you're going to become. Self-centeredness leads to bitterness and self-expression leads to depression. It's ironic to me that our platforms are getting built bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and yet we're more depressed and more anxious than ever. It's because we were never meant to hold the weight of our own worship. There's one person that's meant to be glorified. Man, it's, this, this is so lame, but my mom said... David, you know the pathway to joy? J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. And it stuck with me. And something happens. And some of us are, man, the world's gonna tell us in like secular psychology that the answer to healing is self-care. And, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm not gonna fully argue, There's, that's a component I think self-care is important in seasons and with the right intention. My counselor told me self-care is never selfish if Jesus is at the center of it. It's good stewardship. But self-care has to be stewardship. It can't be the end to itself. It has to be a means to an end. We, we pull back and we have self-care so that we can what? Care for others. 
If we pull back and do self-care just for ourselves, friends, if we continue to navel gaze, we will continue to be more empty and more empty and more empty. And Jesus is showing these disciples, listen, the pathway to satisfaction, the pathway to refreshment is by you refreshing other people because God refreshes those who refresh other people. God will bring back to those who give abundantly to other people. I believe he's looking for a group of people who would do that. I mean, I, listen, I don't find it ironic. In fact, I think it's very intentional that Jesus chose to go to Bethsaida. Here's why. Because the landscape of Israel, there's a river that runs right through this and dumps into the Sea of Galilee. It's known as what, you know? The Jordan River. This is where Jesus was baptized. It's the, it's the preeminent river in Israel. And then it, it extends down, and there's Jerusalem way down here in the south, but then there's this other body of water down on the south side. You guys can see this? In the south, southern part of Israel, there's a, there's a body of water called the Dead Sea. And it's called the Dead Sea because it's dead. There's no life. There's no ecosystem. The salt concentration can't sustain life. Now, if you go and visit, you can go and you can float in it, and there's so much salt that it makes you very buoyant, and you can like float around. It's kind of cool to see, but there's no life forms. It's in the middle of a desert. Yet, the Sea of Galilee is the place where it is possibly one of the most, on earth, one of the most vibrant, abundant places of life. And Jesus chose to do his ministry right here. Well, at the top of this, there's this mountain called Mount Hermon, which is called the Mountain of God. And the, the, the Jordan River flows from the mountain of God. And then right here is a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is where Jesus took his disciples to enact and instate the church. He took them up to the Golan Heights, the top where the Jordan River flows right here and said, this is the church. This is the passage where he says, you, you will be Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not be able to overcome it. So he enacts the church and he says, this church is going to be this life-giving institution, this life-giving movement that will flow into different systems of society and different people and and lives and marriages, and and, and it will create vibrancy in life. And then out of that, whoever gets transformed by that, it will flow out of them. But the problem is, is many of us live like the, the Dead Sea. We consume, and we consume, and we consume, and there are things that are flowing into us but nothing flows out of us because we're just like the disciples. Let's just kind of look at me and close ourselves off. And we're just going to be consumers and we're just going to look at convenience and comfort, but man, sacrifice and giving. And and Jesus chose to feed the 5,000 right here where the Jordan River dumps into the Sea of Galilee. I don't know about you, but I want to be like the Sea of Galilee. I don't want my life to be this festering, spoiling, rotting reservoir where stuff dumps into it all the time, but I'm not pouring anything out into other people. And, 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 I, and I believe it is impossible for you and I to have life without this being the case. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, everybody gets satisfied. The system there was broken because the disciples chose to be Selfless. What's crazy, friends, is that Jesus did this a couple other different places. Do you remember the Last Supper where, where he took the bread and it says he blessed it, broke it, and distributed it? 
telling the disciples, hey, this is what I'm going to undergo. This is a metaphor for my life. I was blessed by the Father. I will be broken so I can be distributed. And then the road to Emmaus, right? People recognize him because he blessed it. He broke it. He distributed it. He tells the disciples, I have come not to be served, but to serve, to give myself up as a ransom for many. And then he sends the disciples out and sends us out as a church. He says, I am sending you out in the same way that I was sent to serve and give your life as a ransom. Blessed, broken, distributed for the sake of this world. That's my prayer. That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for our family. That's my prayer for our Mercy Road family. Like, that's what I want to, because that's how we're going to see a movement, friends. The, 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 the vision of Mercy Road is to see a million people come to know Christ. And it's not that far off. I mean, it's very easy to go, how in the world can we see a million? That's crazy. But I was doing the math, and I'm like, wait a minute. If you were to take one and double it, you make what? Come on. Take one and double it, you make what? Nothing. <laughs> oh no, is this a trick question? Jesus, right? That's the right answer. No, it's two. You double it, right? So you double it once, you get two. If you double it again, what do you get? Four. Okay, if you keep doubling it, if you get to the 10th doubling, it's the number 1,024, which by the way, I was asking Josh yesterday, that how many people come on a regular basis to all the Mercy Road family of churches? He said about 1,700 people across the city, which means there's about 3,000 people that call Mercy Road Church their home because people kind of attend every other week and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh my gosh, in 10 years, God has superseded this like 10,000, this, this uh, 1,024 number. That's amazing. Well, then I started going, okay, well, how much further do we have to go to get to a million? Do you know how much further we have to go? If this, if God keeps doing this, it's another 10 years to reach a million people. I don't know about you, but I can, I can, I can work on this in 10 years. I can do this. In, no, but here's what's crazier. I started going, I'm like, Josh, this is crazy. In, in 10, I'm not even the math, I'm like the, 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 I guess the token mathematician or something of Mercy Road, I don't know. So I'm like, Josh, in 10, 10 years, it'll be a million people if we just keep this doubling principle, this multiplying effect, which by the way is God's economy. And, and, and then he was like, well, well that's, not, that, that's not gonna be enough then. Don't you love that we have a pastor and pastors who are like, no, 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 that's not enough until the whole world hears it. He goes, do the math, Davey, on how long it would take for the whole world to meet Christ. I'm like, okay, it's about six and a half, seven billion people. Okay, so I did the math. Seven billion people. Okay, the, it, to get to seven billion people, okay, seven billion, it only takes another 13 years. 26 years, and we can reach the entire world just by seeing this multiplication principle take place. How amazing is that, Mercy Road? I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of something like that. I want to take my part in the kingdom of God and participate. So here's the deal. This whole series, we've been trying to challenge you. Step into the engagement pathway. Just play a part. Do what, do what you can with what you have. We have a, the engagement pathway right here. If maybe you need to go to Rooted, maybe that's your next step. If you need to go to First Step, maybe that's your next step. Maybe you've been attending for a while, you've gone to Rooted, you've done all that stuff, but you've not stepped in, and maybe your next step is to start an outpost. Pastor Greg has been working furiously over the past year or so to, to launch these specialized outposts called microchurches. It's the big emphasis right now where it's people who are opening up their homes, opening up their lives, giving of themselves, having uh, food together and worshiping together and praying together and inviting their neighbors in to just share the gospel with them. 
and see them meet Jesus. You think you could do that? How amazing would it be if every one of us said, you know what? We're just gonna open up our lives and we're gonna give. In the same way the disciples said, you know what? This is the, okay, we're just gonna give, we're just gonna give, we're just gonna give, we're just gonna give. What could God do? So I wanna challenge you with this. Um, we're gonna pray right now. We're gonna respond in worship uh, because just like Jesus, I am way over my time. Um, and I know you're hungry. You're trying to beat the Baptists to the restaurant. So, but here's the deal. Every one of us has a next step where God's calling us to, to make a little sacrifice. And I wanna invite you to ask God in this time of reflection and worship and just doing business with him, what is my next step, God? What am I, am I supposed to start an outpost? Am I supposed to step into Rooted? Am I supposed to get into a huddle? What is it that I'm supposed to do to really participate with you in this movement? God, we just ask right now that you would speak to us. Would you speak to us? Would you show us individually? That's what I love about you, God, is you're so personal. You meet us right where we're at. And you, you lovingly take us to the next step. You don't require or ask all this from us. Like, you don't ask us to do all of these things at one time. You just say, hey, let's just take one step. Let's just, let's just break the grip of greed just a little bit in our lives. Let's just break the stronghold of selfishness just a little bit in our lives. So as we respond to you right now, as we answer that call, as we receive that invitation, God, would you just give us the courage and the boldness? Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen.